So we're back in Luke, even though I'm starting in Mark. Uh, we're back in Luke, and we're still on the same subject. What's it like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What's it like to really follow Christ? And if we could, I'd like, uh, if you could, Rod Mack, would you mind just opening us with prayer? And I know the folks on Zoom can't hear, but I'll just apologize in advance. Yes, Father, we just thank you for all things that you provide for us. We know things that all come, that all things come from you. We praise you. We praise your name for that. And we ask, Lord, that as we go forward in this life, that we'll never forget the things that you've done for us. We ask also, Lord, that your blessing on this service this morning. We ask that you be with Brother Bob and clear his mind, clear our mind for reception. For us in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. That's an important prayer, Rod. Thank you. Did you ever want to just spend a few days with Jesus? You know, before I started on this little section in Luke, I thought, you know, I'd love to spend a few days with Jesus. And then after reading the details of what it was like traveling with him, I'm starting to have second thoughts whether I could even keep up. Certainly not, not at my age now. Uh, I, I did this last time, and I'm using it as an introduction this time, but think about what it was like for these guys. Just three days, we're going into, we're not really going into day four, we're really looking at two weeks in their life, uh, but the first three days stepping into following Christ has been quite an experience for them. Day one, they went out of town in Capernaum, and people came from all over, and they were teaching, and they were healing, and it's at that time that Jesus taught the parable of the sower. Uh, I'm looking around because I don't know where I put my coffee cup. It's actually just water. Linda, would you look in the back and see if I didn't leave it back when I made the coffee this morning? It's, it's just water. But Day one, they spent all day teaching to those crowds, and that, that's where we get our piece of the sermon, the parable of the sower. We, we looked at that over a month ago now. This was a big event. Crowds and crowds of people came, and I, I don't know about you, but after a day like that, thank you, hon. After a day like that, I'd be pretty darn tired, and uh, be glad to get back home. They were able to stand. They think they were staying at Peter's house in Capernaum, and uh, you can imagine all those guys crashing into that little house and uh, exhausted and tired and dirty, and uh, they eat dinner and uh, they 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 get a little bit of water in them, and uh, Jesus goes, hey. Let's let's get in a boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee, you know. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? And these guys, they get in one of the boats. We don't know whose boat it was, but there were six fishermen in the crowd. So they got in one of the boats and they took off across the sea. And halfway across the sea, a storm hits them like these sailors had never seen in their lives, and they were terrified. And it was so terrible that these fishermen actually cried out for their lives. Uh, they were they were terrified, and I'm picking this up from Mark because Luke doesn't talk about this. Now Mark was not on this trip either. It's it's important to keep in mind Luke and Mark are are writing their records from other people's reports. Luke was a Gentile. Mark was just a young man at the time. They think Mark was that guy at the Garden of Gethsemane when when it said and one of them fled uh, naked without his, his, his pajamas on. He started to run. A Roman soldier grabbed his outer garment, and he fled, left his outer garment behind and just ran off in his underwear. And we believe that was John Mark. And depends on who you're reading, but most of the books I'm reading anyway, the conservative books, are saying that the author of the Book of Mark 
is John Mark, who was just a teenager when Jesus was around. They also think, because this is, a, this is liberal criticism now, that they think because this is the shortest book, that it was the first, which is absurd. Uh, it's absurd because Mark could write as much as he wanted to, and they almost imply by saying Mark was first, the other things were added on. You know, they didn't really happen. But when you get to Matthew, and I love the book of Matthew, that's, that's a first-hand account. He was there. We'll, we'll quote him in just a minute. But many people believe that Mark got his information from Peter, who was on the boat. That's important to know. All right, And there's some details in there from Peter, if you will, if you accept that theory, that uh, you won't get in other of the Gospels. And this is one of them. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. There was a great storm that came down on him. The word is a mega storm, uh, a monster storm that they'd never seen before. They were approaching those mountains and the wind was coming down off of the mountains on the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. They'd never experienced anything like that before. The boat was filled with water and they were terrified and he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. Well, he ought to be. He's worked all day. And they awoke him and they said unto him, and I love this phrase, Master, carest thou not that we perish? You ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation where you say, Lord, I'm dying here. I'm dying here, Lord. I need your help. I really need your help. And that's where they found themselves. And that's really what this sermon is all about. I believe that he delights. Well, I don't know if that's too strong a word. In getting us in situations where we think we're going to die. We can't handle the problem that we're in. And he arose and rebuked the wind. He, he, and another gospel writer said he stood up and said, be thou muzzled or be still. And the wind stopped. And the writer here tells us they were actually more afraid of the calm than they were of the storm. They, they were terrified. Peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm, greater omega calm, if you will. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it you have no faith? And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? These things don't just normally happen, do they? And they feared exceedingly. They were more afraid of the calm than they were of the storm and said to one another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So they find themselves on the other shore. They're now on the eastern side. I put in a map this time, but I haven't gotten there yet. They're now on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They're coming up on the shore. They're pulling their boat up, probably putting a stake in if, uh, if what I think is true is true, uh, and uh, tying it to that stake, driving it in the sand. And just about the time they get it tied up, this raving naked lunatic comes running at them from out of those tombs, screaming. And Jesus confronts this man and heals this man. We're at the next morning, the beginning of day two. They watch as Jesus heals this man. They go through that process that we've already talked about. The town rushes out and demands that they leave immediately. So after all of that, that they've been through, no evidence at all that they ate anything. Now they may have taken some food for their journey. They climb back in their boat and they headed back towards Capernaum. This is the morning of the second day. They land at Capernaum and they find that people from all over the area have arrived to see Jesus. So instead of a day off, what they have is mountains and mountains of people 
a vast crowd of people pressing on the Lord Jesus Christ in mobs as they're trying to get to their house, just mobbed with people. And he turns to one of his disciples, and imagine this were you. He turns to you and he said, who touched me? And you're looking around thinking, are you kidding? They all touched you. You know, they're mobbing you. What are you talking about? But we know the story of the woman who believed that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she could be healed, and she was. That's day two. He's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, who has died in the process of him getting there, and he raises her from the dead. Now, we don't know how much time has passed between that where we cut off before our vacation and the first mission trip that we talked about last Sunday. We don't know how many days have elapsed in this. With Luke, it's kind of hard to tell because Luke writes, and this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and by the time you get done with the chapter, it's got 75 verses, and you're thinking, wow, these guys, you know, they need to break this thing down some, you know. So I'm not sure how much time has elapsed, but I hope they've had a month off now. I doubt seriously if they've had more than a day or two before Jesus sends them on the mission trip in Luke chapter 9 and verse 1, which we're going to be just at the end of that. But I, I hope they got a little break before he sent them out two by two on their own now this time. And if you'll remember from last week, he gave them power and authority to heal, to cast out demons, and to raise the dead. They were supposed to go proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, but as they went, they were going to, you know, cast out demons, heal the sick, and raise the dead. That, that's pretty cool. You know, and they came back all excited, as we know. So this is where we pick up here. And the apostles, when they returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them, and spake unto them of the kingdom of God, and healed them that needed healing. And I put this map in here so you can see it. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, uh, in, a little to the left of center for you. Uh, you see uh, on the left, no, am I saying that right? i got to turn around, sorry. Over here on the left, Gergesha. They really don't know where that town is. They found a number of towns that meet the qualifications, and if you're interested in a, in a complex study, um, if, if you're interested in it, uh, get on the internet and, and look it up. It's a fascinating study. Uh, find a conservative scholar that did the research, not a liberal, because they'll tell you they made all this stuff up. Oh, David, I left my pointers. I was going to point these, but you won't have to imagine it. I'm sorry. Now, see, under hippos, go down below hippos, maybe uh, in your mind, four inches. That's where they think uh, they landed. And that's where I told you they landed that time. But there's an argument about the topography of the, the uh, swine jumping off a cliff. So you got to ride around and find a good place where a swine can jump off a cliff and into the water. And you'll see there's some beach there from the mountains. So there's an issue there about where this actually happened. And they have recently excavated a town, it's not on this map, where they think that this may have happened and it fit that. The whole area was Gentile. The whole area was pagan. The whole area was problematic with demons. 
It, and, and that's why they hit that storm on the way over. Satan did not want Jesus to land on that shore. And he did not want the sickest, most demon-possessed disaster of a man in the entire community to be healed and now an evangelist for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what a difference that guy made? As he went back into town, everybody knew who he was. They just had to try to picture him with, without clothes on so they could identify him. But uh, he, was, he was crazy. And now he's an evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Uh, now it appears that his intention then was a short break. And in this short break, he wanted to just do a little camping and let him recover. So they left Capernaum, as you can see, a little to the left of center there at the top and walked over to the area outside of Bethsaida where they could do some camping. But unfortunately, the crowds followed them. And when I say crowds, when they sit down to eat, there's going to be 5,000 men. So we don't know how many women followed. We, we don't know how many children were involved. Uh, but we, we know there were at least 5,000 men involved that followed them. And it, it says that Jesus graciously healed anyone in need of healing. And I, I spoke about this last week, uh, how even when it's an inconvenient time for Jesus, he'll make time for you. Even when they're tired and they're sick and they need a break, he stopped and he took time with the people. So, so much for a short vacation, huh? Yeah. And when the day began to wear away, there came the twelve and said unto him, send the multitudes away. Now, this, we're always doing this, aren't we? Jesus, you need to send these people away. We're always telling God. My prayer time has shortened enormously when I stopped telling Jesus what he needed to do uh, for me. You know, uh, These guys came up and said, Lord, you need to send the multitude away. They may go into towns and around about and lodging and get victuals. But we're here in a desert place. Do I want to go to the next one? I think I do. But he said to them, give them ye to eat. You feed them. You feed them. You've seen me do the impossible. Now you do the impossible. We have no more but five loaves, they said, and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for these people. How, how are we going to do that? Now all four Gospels tell us of this event. But only John adds a little detail that, that Jesus spoke to Philip first. And he said to Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, the word bread there is really, in the Greek, is, is a word that implies just food. Uh, where shall we buy food? You know, not just bread. And I don't know why John points this out about Philip. And I don't know why Jesus points this out to Philip. I, I think Jesus got the ball rolling. Philip went to the others, and the others went to Jesus and said, you're going to have to send these people away. But I, I don't have any biblical proof of that, that sequence of events, but that's the way I kind of picture it. And, I, and if you'll allow me the liberty, I would like to say I think that Philip was a worrier. And I think he's the kind of guy that this would really bug, that all these people are here, and it would be appropriate to to have something for them to eat. They're just going to faint. They're not going to be able to make it home. I think he was a worrier. And, and I think Jesus went over and whispered to him, where, where are we going to get food for all these people? And I think there's a reason for that. I suspect that Philip worried about those kind of details and that Jesus was pointing out Philip's inability. And I believe 
Jesus likes to get us into a situation where we can't. So he can prove to us that he can. He's going to talk about the end of self here. I remember Dr. Bickers. Dr. Bickers, I've told this story, but it's so long ago, many of you haven't heard it, was a siding contractor, had his own business in Dallas, Texas. Stopped at a stoplight one day. He was a Christian too, of course. Stopped at a stoplight one day and God spoke to him. He was in his early 30s. He had a couple of kids. He must have been later than that because his kids were almost teenagers. And God spoke to him and said, I want you to go to Africa as a missionary. And it upset him so much he pulled off the road. And he spent some time right there at a stoplight in Dallas, Texas. And God and him having a conversation about Africa and about a siding contractor that barely got out of high school and never went to college. And God convinced him that he should go to college, and he did. And then God convinced him that he should go to seminary, and he did. And after he'd spent years and years in Africa, he came back and actually earned a doctorate. So there was no limitation on his mental powers. It was just his vision of what he himself was capable of. But he did that, sold his business. I think one of the things he said to God was, Lord, I've got this business worn. He said, I, I don't think anyone would be willing to buy it. And when he got in the house, he said his phone was ringing. And he answered the, the phone and the guy said, you don't know me. My name is such and such. I'm from New York City. But I've heard that you have a siding business for sale in Texas. Is that true? And, and Dr. Bicker says, yeah, yeah I, I, I guess I do. And he said, well, how much do you want for it? And he hadn't even thought about it. He said, make me an offer. <laughs> you know, sold his business the same day, enrolled in school, graduated with a bachelor's, went for his master's in, in uh, mission, missionology, I believe, and went to Africa. Now, that's a long story. To bring you up to this one point, he lands at Africa. They go to Malawi. That's where he felt called. And he said one of the first things they did was took him to the graveyard of the missionaries, and one of the missionaries stopped and he said, do you know what this is? And he said, no. And he said, this... All these gravestones here are all the missionaries that have come here thinking that they were going to uh, win people to Jesus. You know, and I guess, yeah, welcome to Malawi, right? And uh, that week, he came down with a malaria in his brain that almost killed him. His wife got the same thing, and they spent a year in two different homes being cared for, waiting to recover from that malaria. Now, what do you think he was thinking then? He was thinking, Philip, where, where are we going to get the money to buy all this bread? What, what, God, what are you doing here? You went through all of that to just to come over here and die. His kids were farmed out to another town. His wife was in another home. They both needed too much care to both stay in one home. And they both recovered, obviously. They both got on the mission field. They both spent 15 or, 15 or 16 years, two or three tours in Malawi, they did, his wife was a nurse, she did medical work, and he preached. He would really just sit down with local chieftains and visit. He wasn't really a preacher preacher, he would just visit and talk to people. And they planted churches in Malawi. And then when the, the country decided he could teach in the colleges, they sent him back to the United States to earn a doctorate. When he earned his doctorate, that's why I call him Dr. Beckers at Mid-America Seminary, where I was at the time, uh, in, the t in that time, there was a coup, and the government said, you're no longer welcome back here. 
So he stayed as a professor of missionology at, at Mid-American Seminary. He couldn't go back to Africa. But you think you know what God's doing. And all of a sudden, you got a headache and find out it's malaria. And you think, well, what? where are you going to get the food to feed all these people, Philip? For we're told that there were about 5,000 men. That wasn't just really an estimate. They actually set them down in companies of 50. There were 100 companies of 50. They knew how many people were there. And he said to the disciples, make them sit down in 50s by company. And they did so and made them sit down. And then he took the five loaves and two fishes, looking up into heaven, he blessed them. And Brankin gave the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled. This is something that didn't happen in that culture very often, where you could get as much fish and chips as you could eat. And, and you know, these guys were filled. You know that because in the next event, they're going to follow him all the way across to the other side of the, the, the Sea of Galilee and try to get him to feed him again. And they did eat and were all filled, and there was taken up of the fragments that remained of them, 12 baskets. Now, I think the real issue here is the 12 baskets, because there were 12 disciples. And each of them carried a basket full of food that both, they all said, send them away, we don't have enough food here. And they all came back with a basket full of food. So, I mean, you get an idea of God's ability to provide for us when we're in need. You know, it's really a remarkable story. But notice here, and my message is a little different, that the apostles are going from one impossible situation, one impossible task to another. All day healing and a revival service to a terrifying storm on the Sea of Galilee. Charged by a raving lunatic to being rejected by the townspeople that they went over. Presumably the witness to, but actually they didn't. Jesus crossed that sea in that storm to win one person. One person. That's, all, that's what mattered. That one person. He knew the town would reject him. They returned back across the Sea of Galilee to a mob of people, all of them needing Jesus' help. And Jesus wants to know from you who touched me. It's an impossible situation. Next, they were sent on a mission to preach and heal and raise the dead, after which they're told again, right now, Jesus is going to say, you have to understand that the religious leaders are going to kill me. Now they had in their head what, what the Messiah was going to do, but the Messiah wasn't going to do anything of what they expected. That night Jesus said to them, and it came to pass, this is after the mob was fed, right? That night it came to pass as he was alone praying with his disciples and they were with him and he asked them saying, whom, whom say people that I am? And they answered and said, some think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elias or Elijah. Or Elisha, I really don't know which one that is. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, but whom say ye that I am? I think it's Matthew or John have it as thou art the Christ, son of the living God. Uh, Luke just writes down, Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. The anointed, the Christ means the anointed one, the anointed one of God. You're God's son. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Peter, you're right. I am the Christ of God. Now keep it a secret. They had it in their head what God was going to do. But they never expected the Messiah wanted to keep it a secret. Did they? Not for a moment. And then, he says to them that night, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. 
A very confused Peter rejects this sentence from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, no, no, this must never happen to you. And you know the story because Jesus returned and he said, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art offense unto me. So Peter actually became a voice box for Satan at that point. But they all had expectations about the Messiah. And nothing they expected happened. They expected the Messiah to come and kick out the Romans. They expected the Messiah to come and establish his kingdom on the earth at Jerusalem. They expected the millennium to begin. They have all these prophecies that they'd memorized. They, they anticipated all these things would happen. And they will. Just not yet. They had expectations. Now that's verse 22. Look at verse 23. He, he, Jesus knows what they're thinking, see. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. Now there's a whole lot packed into those two sentences and I'm going to almost skim over them. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Well, the message is clear. Either we follow Jesus and do things His way, or we're walking by ourselves and we're headed towards destruction. That's pretty clear. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come into his own glory in his Father's. This is what they're thinking. They're thinking that he should be coming into his own glory now in his Father's kingdom. And the holy angels should be around him now. And it should all be happening now. They don't want to wait any longer. But judging by this whole walk I've taken you through this one, actually it's two chapters of Luke, whatever denying myself might mean, and we could probably study that for a long time, it certainly includes many things that frighten and exhaust me. I can expect to be terrified and I expect to be tired. I can expect problems that are beyond my control to solve. I can expect storms. I can expect lunatics. I can expect rejections. And I can expect challenges beyond my own abilities. If I'm going to follow Christ, these should be my expectations. I should expect challenges beyond my abilities. It certainly means that I can expect, I can be expected to stand with Jesus when he's rejected by everyone else. Now there's a challenge for you. Stand with Jesus when he's rejected by everyone else. And think about the world you're living in right now. Stand with Jesus when he's rejected by everyone else. Now watch this. Eight days later, I'm not going to read it all. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. We don't even know which mountain. We can speculate. Takes them up on a nearby mountain. Now, much later, we find out that it comes to be called the Mount of Transfiguration because at the top of that mountain, Jesus is transfigured into his glorified body and he has a, he has a meeting with Moses and Elijah. And they're actually talking about his upcoming death. I don't know if he's teaching them, if they're teaching him what it's like to physically die or I, I don't know what's going on. I just know that they're talking about his Demise, the Bible says. Now what's significant to me in, in this particular lesson that I'm attempting to teach here 
is that he took three with him, but he left nine behind. He left them on their own. Now remember, they have authority over demons and over healings and the raising the dead, so they weren't exactly defenseless. But I think it's deliberate that he left them there. Did Jesus not know what was going to happen while he was gone? This is the question. Now they were up there overnight because on the next day they returned. So it says that it came to pass that on the next day when they were come down from the hill, much people met him and behold, a man of the company cried out saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only son. Somebody mentioned, and I don't know who it was, here the only begotten of the father is going to heal the only begotten of another father. It's an interesting parallel there. And Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation. Now, I, I read this and I assume that everyone is standing around going, yeah, yeah, they, don't, they couldn't heal him, they couldn't heal him. You know, I, I don't know what's happening here. There's no explanation. Except Jesus appears, when I read this verse, to be rebuking the crowd for their faithlessness. And we know that there were places Jesus went where people were so faithless, the Bible says he couldn't do any miracles there. Because there was no faith. There was no faith. And he goes almost in anger. He says, you know, bring thy son hither. Then came the disciples of Jesus apart. Oh, I've lost my place. I'm sorry. Let me back up a minute. See if I can catch my brain here. Well, the point here is that these guys, these nine, feel like they failed the crowd. And because they were left on their own, they feel like they failed Jesus. And I ended page three with, do you think Jesus meant for this to happen? And you know by now, my answer is yes. I think this was a deliberate setup. Let me back up forward. Let me go forward again. Matthew tells us a little bit more because when they got alone with Jesus, and I put Matthew in red so you could tell we've changed books now. All right. Uh, I changed because of your unbelief because I wanted it to stand out. Then came the disciples of Jesus apart and said, whoa, 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 what happened? <laughs> what? Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus says to them, because of your unbelief. And see, I, I, and when I read that in Luke, I'm thinking, no, he's talking to the crowd. But here in Matthew, he, he focuses in and says, no, it's because of your lack of faith. Your lack of faith. For verily I say unto you, if ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove hence yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Well, that's a great verse. That's a great verse. And you want to take a black magic marker and mark out this next one. Because I don't know what he was thinking. 1721, how be it this kind go it not out by, but by prayer and fasting. I'm thinking, huh? Huh? What do you mean this kind? You mean there's different kinds? You mean there's some that are tougher than others? You mean you left us down here and this mega demon comes in and now we're trying to fight something that's beyond our control? Yeah. I set it up that way. I don't think this is an accident. You know. And then almost 
In frustration, he says, bring thy son hither. And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tore him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. That's cool, isn't it? But while they wondered, every one at all the things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples. So the crowd is all excited that Jesus had the power to, to heal this stronger than normal demon. This, we don't know what. We, we don't know anything about ranks of demons or angels other than principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's all we know. And it's probably good. It's probably good that we don't know much more than that. But while the crowd was all wandering, he turns to his disciples and he says this. Let these things sink down into your ears for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. They're not hearing him, but they understood not his saying and it was hid from them and they perceived it not and they feared to ask him of that saying. They were afraid they would look stupid. They were afraid they would embarrass themselves. There's a lot of times they do that. He'll teach, he'll teach one parable and he'll say, do you, do you, others, do you understand the other parables? And they'll go, yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't got a clue what he said. 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out what Jesus said sometimes. Now, my point is fairly simple and I've repeated it twice already. Following Jesus is not what they expected. I mean, they had this vision of what it was going to be like to walk with the Messiah. It hadn't been anything like that. I had a guy, the guy that started this church, Bob Lovins, taught men's Sunday school when we first came here. He, he was a layman, great Christian. But one of his lessons that he often taught was, if you follow Jesus, you won't have any more problems. And I thought, I'm sitting in that lesson thinking, what Bible is he reading? You know, are you kidding me? It seems to me these guys have had nothing but problems. I, I guess when you're reading it, it sounds like a glorious story to be out there in a gale and have your boat sink, but it's not fun when you're in the boat. You know, so I, I, I didn't think he got it. You know, I think Dr. Bicker's experience is more real to someone who commits himself to follow Jesus than uh, Bob Lovins would teach in Sunday school class. I really do. Dallas Jenkins in the Chosen series has Jesus saying these words, which to my knowledge are not biblical. But he says, get used to different. I would say get used to not having your expectations met if you're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing will turn out as you expected. But I will say something else about it. When everything does turn out, it'll be better than you expected. You know, you don't lose anything in following Jesus. You gain everything. But it seems like you're losing everything. You, you give up everything to gain even even so much more. And that's what people don't understand. I, I, I don't want to give it up. I don't want to give it up. But God gives you so much more in return. I, I would kind of rephrase Dallas uh, and say that if we would decide to attempt to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we should get used to things that frighten us and leave us exhausted. We should get used to things that are beyond our ability to control or solve. It gets us in a position where we have to faith it. We have to trust Him. We have to get used to things that involve storms 
and lunatics and rejection. I like that. And apparent failures. Demons that we have no power over. We don't even... They, these guys had cast out so many demons, they thought they had it down, and then they hit one they couldn't cast out. And they didn't know why. That'll happen to you if you try to follow Jesus. We have to get used to things that force us to turn to Jesus and say, I can't do this. Dot, dot, dot. But you can. That's what Paul would say. Whoops, I lost my mousey. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do it, but he can. Let's pray. It is sincerely my hope that you have come to Christ in your past. You have laid the burden of your sins before him and asked him to forgive them. And that you've invited him into your heart to save you. It's my sincerest hope that at some point in the past you've prayed what we call the sinner's prayer. But you don't have to follow these words. You can simply say, Lord, please save me. I always tell people to confess their sins and say, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. Lord, I confess that I have failed in many ways. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and save me and lead me and I will follow you. But however you pray it, pray it in Jesus' name. End with the words, in Jesus' name. Because Jesus said, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, I will do it. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name, the name is Jesus, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, thank you. Give us courage to believe the impossible. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.